Welcome to the Theology Podcast. I'm C.R. Wiley, and uh, I'm joined by a couple of guys that I'm usually with when we do these shows, and I'll let them introduce themselves, but I'm a pastor in the Pacific Northwest. I've written a number of things, write a lot of stuff for World Magazine, particularly their op-ed page online, and I'm also a uh, senior editor for Touchstone Magazine. Enough about me. So how about you, Glenn? I'm Glenn Sunshine. I'm a retired history professor uh, specializing in Renaissance and Reformation Europe. I'm a ministry associate at Reflections Ministries, working on curriculum development and content. And I'm a senior fellow at the Colson Center for Christian Worldview. And I have my own ministry, Every Square Inch Ministries. And that keeps me off the streets. Yeah, it keeps you... Keeps you keeps you busy. <laughs> anyway, that's what retirement is like. You know, you go from yep. like uh, 40 hours a week to 80 hours a week. <laughs> All, right. <laughs> All right, Tom, why don't you introduce yourself and then tell us what we're talking about today. Okay. I'm not retired, but I'm, ma- <laughs> I'm, ma- I'm matching <laughs> schedules pretty much one for one. <laughs> got, got, got something burning in a lot of ovens. Um, well, one of the topics uh, that, well, the topic tip for today is one of the ones that is coming out of what I'm working on, the long promised kind of handbook on the, for the baptized. And one of the things I've been reflecting on is how constructively to think about as Christians that part of our baptism that is a renunciation of Satan and an assault on the idolatrous order that we're called to go to battle with in the name of the victory of Christ. I mean, this is sort of what sets it. Yeah, now this is something that maybe we should fill people in on. So traditionally, you know, when you in baptism, for an adult anyway, there would be a renunciation of the world, the flesh, and the devil. I don't think that many traditions still carry that forward, at least in Protestantism. Yeah. Well, and actually, even with infant baptism, uh, I don't know how long this lasted, but they used to do an exorcism. Yeah, yeah I, did, didn't they do that in the Eastern Church uh, primarily? Um, I think it was also in the Western, certainly in the Eastern, but I think the Western Church did it at least for a while as well. Okay, okay. Yeah, we still have it as part of our liturgy in, 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 uh, in our, our church, and, and I think it's an important one. We also have it as part of when you're confirmed, so it, it's part of both. But I think fundamentally it's it's it's— biblical all the way down in the sense that when you convert to Christ's lordship, you are part now of his kingdom of light and his victory over the gods and the demons, death, hell, and the grave. And so part of what we do as his ambassadors, if you will, is carry out that battle of bringing all things into conformity to Christ, first and foremost, our own lives in in our commitment to the, the church and its mission, but also as the church had, did from the start, as it goes out in mission, is proclaim the victory of Christ. And that has uh, definitely both a spiritual and a, you know, concomitant moral aspect to it. And it did from the start. Um, and so one of the things that you see early on in, in Christianity is the way in which the Christian distinct understanding of God, creation, redemption— starts to foreshadow itself um, in different places. I'll give you a good example. St. Augustine talking, of course, uh, you know, talking, of course, to his generation, um, was basically creating a defense against charges against Christians that they basically were responsible for being bad citizens, right, of Rome, and that helped prepare the way for a weakness and then its own sack, right? 
And one of the things that uh, Augustine noted was, first and foremost, that what the Romans tended to do is brag a lot about how glorious their past was and how noble and virtuous they were, and really do this in utter ignorance of their own often rigorous depravity, corruption, and vice, um, which always handicapped a lot of its better virtues. So he would admit it had a lot of good virtues, but this was always limited. And he pressed on it. A lot of it had to do with their religion because their religion basically isn't the true God, but is demonic at root. And that demonic allowed for that corruption to be expressed in all kinds of social ways, theaters, spectacles. We'll get into some of this. But one of the things he noted is that during the the invasion where the Visigoths are basically coming in, uh, Alariac, I guess, is, is the figure right. I'm thinking in particular. One of the things that happened is there was such a renowned respect for churches because of the name of Christ and the distinction it brought to culture that the Visigoths stopped and allowed churches to become sanctuaries for Romans who were caught up in the battle and would not be captured if they got to the church and they would not be raided or become slaves. They allowed it to be a sanctuary, if you will. Now, this is totally different, though it maybe gets a little bit of its semblance from in sanctuary cities today, though those are run off a different, different theological steam. <laughs> but, but what it provided for Augustine is a foreshadowing of the Christian difference. That here is someone who is considered by Romans as a barber, you know, barbaric, and he was barbaric. But even this one would stop at the recognition of this Christian difference brought into the world. There was something about Christ and what the church was committed to that made him take a step back and allow it to become a haven of peace. Even for people that didn't convert, pagan Romans, they were allowed to go in. Yeah, one thing you have to remember is that <clears throat> the Visigoths at this point were sort of Christians. Mm -hmm. They were Arians. Yeah. Um, so they're... What's interesting is that even as Arians, they honored the Orthodox churches. Yes, yeah. yeah. So and, we, we can't forget that. They're not just barbarians. You yeah. do have a, a Christian yeah. influence. And there. Arian Christianity was was spreading spreading at that time in influence. But one of the things they did, but they didn't, they allowed for pagans to basically go there, and the church didn't demand conversion, allowed them to take safe haven there. So after these pagans... Um, were let go and allowed to live and go on with their lives, right? Um, they were the very voices in many cases that were charging the church with being the very weakening of Rome. And this is where Augustine goes after the ingratitude of those who take for granted that this something special is not something from the Roman gods or the Roman virtue, but distinctly Christian and a distinctly contribution that saved their very lives and, if not, th their own continuous continuance as Romans. And yet here they are. This was a very vehicle, in a sense, of some kind of salvation for them, and yet all they had was ingratitude and, and basically... Uh, a criticism of the church. Now, of course, there's a lot there because we could say very much that even though the Enlightenment may be a disfiguring of a lot of what Christianity gave, it still carries a lot of its riches around with it. And the benefits that we have today 
that have come from Christianity rather than the barbaric world that preceded it um, is such that we too are often ungrateful and think if we could just dismantle the impact of Christianity in the world, we're going to create a utopia of freedom and, and equity rather than a barbaric situation that is so horrendous that we don't even have an imagination for it. Yeah, one of the things, too, that is a problem for us is there's a, you know, a, a kind of the residue of a, of a Christian uh, civilization still with us, but there's tremendous ignorance about Christianity, generally speaking. Yeah. So, you know, they'll there'll be a few things that people will recall or will use as a basis for their contempt for the faith. You know, a classic example would be maybe um, the Crusades, um, which uh, are not understood and are misrepresented uh, even when people, you know, know a little bit about them. <laughs> uh, but, you know, so, and, and one of the, things that troubles me is that we, we lack the, the kind of, uh, I guess, confidence, even as the church to correct these people. Yeah. Uh, most of the time we just say, Oh, so, so we're so sorry. Uh, we, that we, uh, you know, we're guilty of, 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 you know, you know, sinning. Well, yes. I mean, we should be able to say that when, when in fact, um, we are guilty, but we shouldn't just, uh, take our accuser's words, <laughs> the word yeah. for it, with regard to everything. Well, one of the things, I think you're exactly right, Chris. I think that, you know, this old claim that still lingers in the nodding heads of the babbling elite, you know, that whenever somebody comes up with, oh, well, monotheism has contributed to more world violence, so, you know, than anything in history, it is firstly ignorant. Um, you know, the vast majority of history's wars were in the service of, quote, unquote, the many gods, um, or, or no one God. among those many. Or um, no God. But it, or right. no God. <laughs> yeah, well, that's right. Well, that's where we're getting. Or territory, yeah. national and racial kind of, you know, purity, conquest of power, all libido dominande, which are contrary to the Christian vision and were compromises that Christianity had to make as a, as a larger influence on a society. Um, but tribal supremacy, that wants to come back. You know, empire, the greater good. How, many, how much has been killed in the name of the greater good? You know, ideologies and, of course, atheism probably spilt more blood. And of course, they want to they kind of move away from that and act like that wasn't in their hand. But the, the ethics of compassion that Christianity brought and uh, the, the relational changes to society, we cannot fathom, I think. I mean, we get, we're getting a little taste, those of us old enough to have lived maybe, you know, for a couple of generations to start seeing the impact of more and more Christian influence shed in society, some of like the, you know, the vulgar pride parades and, you know, all of the kind of bacchanalian, you know, dances that are going on in a lot of these kind of cultural, theatrical, you know, plays, if you will. Um, but we, we don't have a taste yet for the barbarism that very well could be around the corner. I think Nietzsche, I think of all figures, because he understood how historically contingent virtues and values are in the way in which Christianity came and disrupted that ancient order, um, knew that once, once God was erased and, you know, the, in the traces of God, that you better look out for, for what's, what's coming. Right. 
Yeah, I think with regard to um, this kind of neo-paganism that we're experiencing, uh, the thing that disturbs me uh, is that it seems to, in a certain sense worse Mm-hmm. than the paganism of, of, of the past. I think C.S. Lewis says something to that effect, you know, that, oh, if it were just that old paganism. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> you know, we might, we might see something different sort of come about. But the, but the challenge that we face now has to do with a kind of, um, I think, chronological snobbery, as Lewis described it, um, that because uh, Christianity is something in the rearview mirror for many people, therefore it must therefore be, uh, uh, well, uh, moribund or, uh, you know, it it failed or something like that. Yeah. As a historian, I would say that we're really in uncharted territory right now. We've never been in a situation where we have a post-Christian society. Right. You know, it's one thing to be in a pagan society, bring Christianity in, grow the church. It's another thing to be in a society that feels like it's been there, done that. Uh, Christianity has nothing at all to offer. It's a very different situation to try to to, um, build the church spread the gospel, all of that in that kind of setting. And well, frankly, like I said, I mean, you know, we're called to do it. So we do it. But in terms of the historical context, we're in uncharted territory now. Yeah. I think, I, I think you're right on the money there. I think one of the things I've been trying to communicate different times is something very similar is that what we're dealing with is something that, carries along with it, as we mentioned before, kind of Christian truths gone mad as well. And like, I mean, one of the things I think because the, because of the Christian influence of its conception of God and the human made in the image of God, and when those alterations happened centuries back, but they filtered down through Christian Christianity and its influence on society, there became something about the human being as an image bearer of God whose will is significant that when ripped from that theological context and becomes almost a God of itself, right? My, my self-choosing and self-determining reality, right? Myself as, you know, the final goal and of, of everything. Um, that becomes a harder God to attack because it's me, and so I don't see it as a god. I don't see it as, a, it as an idol. And this is one of the things I really it was really going on, the, you know, the topic of the show, which I haven't even gotten to, by the way. But <laughs> I took this title from uh, Professor Cobb, who wrote a, a book on, for, uh, I think, Blackwell, the Blackwell Theology Series on Popular Culture. And it's a pretty fascinating, kind of Tillichian interpretation of these things. But he do, does have a lot of insight. But he has a great title called The Congenital Defects of Popular Culture. And I think one of the things that that very point we're talking about, Glenn, is the changed situation is that a lot of the things that were Christian gifts to the West, the significance of the human, each human being is an image bearer, the, you know, the cultural significance that we should give to, to allowing people to pursue, you know, you know, the good um, and, and, and the like, a certain notion of freedom, those were gifts, but when they are ripped from that theological and re-centered in a certain conception of the human being and, and a certain conception of the will, 
they become very destructive. They become kind of ends in their own way, if you will, power for itself, power, empowerment for its own sake or for my own libido dominante, my own lust for dominance or my own lust to be glorified. So we actually go back to, even though we're in uncharted territory, we're also in familiar territory because this was kind of the sin world um, that, you know, someone like Augustine was confronting. When he was talking to the Rome, Romans in the city of God, those two, those two value systems of self-glory, right, and the glory of Rome, um, fame for its own sake, re- self-recognition, self-exaltation, and then the reason or the ultimate goal is to increase one's power and dominance, um, to dominate, and the whole society fostered this ethic. And in a sense, you see something of a return to that, um, the, the, you know, or, or at least taking off a lot of Christian limits, and that's running, running around. But one of the things I wanted to talk about is the way in which a couple of figures in the early church dealt with one of the ways in which that kind of value system, the self, self-glory, and lust for dominance, and other vices— um, became promoted by um, the various aspects of culture because that was sort of how the the culture saw itself and what it valued. Um, so Tertullian, we remember that figure from the early church, um, you know, 16225 AD. Um, he was, I think, located on the north coast of Africa. And uh, we know him kind of as you know, a lot of people tend to think of him as an early presuppositionalist. Um, <laughs> I kind—I'll take issue with that. I don't even think we really fathom what he meant with, uh, you know, Athens. What does uh, what does basically Jerusalem have to do with Athens? But I don't think he was on to what most people think he was on to. He was a very talented lawyer and applied very rigorous legal reasoning in his apologetic. Um, that would be unfamiliar to to a lot of folks. But anyway, one of the things he did is he was a very strong moralist um, in his understanding of Christianity because the society was so corrupt. And one of the books he wrote was really, um, I think, one of the first crit- criticisms of kind of practices of entertainment and public game and celebration, basically symbolic enactments in culture that c- kind of uh, basically project what is valuable to that culture, but also foster and shape that culture in in that continued image. And these were called spectacles. Um, Glenn, you probably have quite a bit to say on these. Um, But I think we could get a glimpse of what one of the types of spectacles was the gladiatorial games. Um, This is the one he goes after in particular. And they were exceptionally brutal. Um, Basically, a wealthy person could purchase someone that was in jail or doing some time and could, you know, basically fund to have that person uh, enter these games for public spectacle and basically prove their strength and, you know, ability and continue life or get some some kind of benefits by continuously winning. And, winning. and they could become famous in their own level, if you will. I don't know that they ever got freed, but they, um, they at least... Um, were able to do it, but they were often going to battle to kill another person freed from jail just to enter that game and basically meet their death. This is how they often got rid of kind of enemies, um, cleaned their jails out and did other things. So this was a blood sport, but this was a blood sport that the society 
drank and thirsted for. Um, and this was similar to you had theater, of course, where you had a lot of theater was, wasn't just kind of going to see an R-rated movie with a, you know, a little, little bit of nudity. It was, it was often very vile. Um, it was, it, there were, could be real rapes happening on sets. I mean, public entertainment, which people were very involved in, and it basically reiterated what Augustine later will say, the, the corrupt nature of the gods, the demons that are influencing the society. Yeah, so, I think, you know, I think something to, to think a little bit about is the success of the church in the early centuries, I think had to do in part with the a kind of a, a revulsion that particularly people who were harmed by these things felt. Um, and so it, the call to, um, you know, to, to, to turn away from these things, to, to, to renounce these things, um, the, the, I think we've lost our ability to, to, to understand how the ascetic practices of the church were appealing. They weren't a turnoff. Now, today, when people think about them, they think about maybe the, uh, you know, the abuses of the Middle Ages or something, you know, yeah. uh, uh, and I'm not an authority on that subject and maybe I'm misrepresenting it, but that's the popular way of thinking about it. I, I wonder if our future as the church uh, might not uh entail a recovery of these ascetic practices just basic stuff like fasting <laughs> yeah, yeah you know you know because yeah. because there's a sense of which i think i think sometimes there's such a sort of almost dunderheaded rejection of gnosticism that people think that anything that smacks of an ascetic is somehow uh a, a real hatred for creation itself yeah, yeah. rather than uh, a renunciation of the, the enslavement to the yeah. flesh that, that people want to be freed from and, and the culture that encourages it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, I recently put up a video on my website talking about the history of Lent. This is a good time to be talking about this kind of thing <laughs> and the practices that were associated with it. And really, you know, Jesus seems to assume we're going to fast. Right. You know, uh, however you want to set that up, you know, whatever you want to think about that in connection with regulative principle or anything else, fasting is a practice we ought to be engaged in. Mm -hmm. um, if we're going to do what Jesus did, getting alone, right. solitude, silence, these kinds of things, also ascetic practices are mm -hmm. things we ought to be thinking about because Jesus did it. And if he right. needed it, you know, it might be a good idea for us. Yeah, you know, I, so I came across. There's a lot to be said for those. Yeah, I, I came across something here the other day that Aaron Wren shared through his Substack, which I thought was uh, significant. And I went to read the original piece, which was a different Substack. That's a whole world in itself, by the way. If you, <laughs> it's, it's like a, it's, it's like a rabbit hole. You could just kind of go and go yeah. and go. But anyway, uh, this this guy, I can't remember the name of the guy or the name of the Substack. I'm sorry. I, I'll, I'll try to, I'll try to uh, find it and put it in the show notes. But his point was with AI, we are on the verge of a new kind of pornography which is a, a custom-made, AI-generated pornography that's going to be very realistic, it already is, and doesn't need people. Hmm. So his point was is that 
one of the main ways that we've been able to, as Christians, sort of mount an attack on pornography and get uh, p- secular people to join with us in the in the in the work of resisting porn- pornographic influences or the in porn, the porn industry is we can talk about exploitation. We can say, well, think about all these girls who are being taken advantage of. Shouldn't we, uh, you know, not objectify women? Well, this deals with that. Yeah. So, so now, since there are no real women involved in the pornography, we can't say that anymore. So, so what are we going to say? Does that make pornography okay? Or do we have to say this damages us spiritually and there is no way for us to sort of just uh, say that there's some broadly, uh, you know, sort of appealing uh, kind of thing that we can state that is is also a problem. Yeah. We, we've been kind of hiding, yeah. uh, you know, the renunciation of the flesh under sort yeah. of the political correctness of, you know, you know, uh, freeing people, liberating people from oppression. But that's going away. Yeah. Now, there's a story that Augustine tells, I think it's in the Confessions, about a guy who's a Christian. You know, he knew that gladiatorial games were, were bad that. news, but somebody invited him to go. And he went along and he watched the games and he quickly became addicted and kept going back and going back and going back. And it seems to me that that there is a that's something worth pondering. Yeah. You know, as as we are looking at what you know, I'm not going back to the fundamentalists. Don't go to movies. Don't watch TV. Don't get on the Internet. I'm, I'm not going there. But there's something to be said about being really careful what you ingest uh, in terms of media or entertainment uh, with the recognition that even a single exposure could end up having really serious consequences long term. They could it, it could lead to this kind of addiction. Yeah, yeah this, related to that, uh, I, I know you got to you want to move on, Tom. But <laughs> no, it's okay. It, it's fine. We uh, got time. <laughs> we got time. <laughs> but but related to that, in anyone who's actually engaged in a fast, uh, you know, a food, uh, but also a fast, maybe from media, can testify to the kind of cleansing sort of a sense that one experiences when you do that. There's a sense in which you're almost kind of being reset. Yeah. Um, cause there is a kind of, I don't know, uh, a, a sense of kind of being, you know, sort of, uh, sort of submersion flesh. And when I'm referring to the flesh, I'm thinking about, uh, the passions that are unredeemed. Uh, I'm talking the excesses, I'm not talking about the simple pleasures that we enjoy because we're embodied creatures. I'm talking about, uh, what I think the flesh is is actually referring to in the New Testament is this mm-hmm. sort of uh, the substitution of uh, physical pleasures for a higher a higher calling. Yeah. Uh, that's the that's the thing is it's the substitution, and yeah. it's and it's the submersion of to the, to the point of spiritual death in this that. I think that the ascetic practices help to free us from. That's right. I think ascetic practices understood 
biblically, and that's what we're talking about here, not as ways of kind of meriting certain favor, but as participations in the putting off of the old and putting on the new. I mean, what does Jesus tell us? Because now you are, um, y- who you are is now grounded in eternity. Put off the old, put on the new. There's nothing but ascetic practices tied to that. You who were angry doing this, do this no more. You, you know, all these different aspects of the flesh that, that were, you know, that played upon our appetites and desires are now to be purified. And this is not contributing to the work of Christ. This is actually participating in its benefits, right? This is where I think people often go wrong. They think if you, if you do anything with your agency spiritually, somehow you're not, it's not God doing it. And no, this is the glorious freedom of the children of God. And so this is the higher state we're called to is to bring all things, our desires in particular, and our bodily, um, in, in our body and, and it's, in it's, passions into order, orientation to Christ. And there is a cultural difference that shows up amongst the social pathologies and the spiritual perversions that we see all around us. And this is, I think, one of the things we're hinting on. If the church didn't, in some ways, however imperfectly, foreshadow that Christian difference, then the impact of the church clearly would never be what it has been. And I think we're, I'm going to get back to some of the ways in which that complicates our current situation, but we are back at this point. And hold on to this notion of what do we do, because I think those are some of the questions that I'm, I'm probing. So one of the things early on Tertullian was worried about, Augustine too, is the spectacles, especially of combat, but all the others basically led to spiritual problems, right? Agitation, um, you know, appetites and desires directed towards destructive, chaotic, and demonic things. And so you have a whole culture that becomes shaped by that, and the social pathologies that come from that are huge. So there is social problems that are enslaving and destructive that these participating in these things continues to cultivate and shape. And so um, you know, and one of the things that Tertullian does, interestingly, is he lit lists, because they listed all the different gods that those different kinds of spec, you know, uh, basically all of those games and all of those theater and all that celebrated. Um, one was, of course, Venus, right? The goddess of lust, right? So lust was one, uh, you know, the Bacchanalian, right? Drunkenness, partying, you know, till you drop out. All of these things that we start to see again, celebrated at big events like Super Bowl, right? I'm, I'm going to get there. I want to I get there because I think the discernment of these early church ministers, if you will, is such that we can learn a lot, even if we can't run the same way they did in their, because our context is somewhat different. But this they reminds, noticed. Yeah, mm-hmm. this reminds me of a couple of things. Uh, one is when I lived in Cambridge, I lived right down the street from a grocery store called Bread and Circus. <laughs> and uh, it was kind of an upscale, crunchy kind of thing where you could pay, you know, $30 for a seven grain loaf of bread or something like that, you know, is that, that, that's, that kind of thing. The other thing that got me thinking about it, uh, is Pompeii <laughs> and this uh, scroll that had recent has recently been um read using, uh, a, you know, uh, artificial intelligence. It was a, a remarkable, uh, sort of, and I think 
redeeming use <laughs> of that technology. Uh, so I, I'm not a big fan of AI, but in this particular case, it was, uh, yeah. yeah, it solved the problem. But do, did you guys see the reports on what was in the, the scroll? I, I didn't. I didn't. Epicurean, I thought that they read it, but that's it. Epicurean philosophy. Oh, really? Yeah. So this was from a library of a wealthy president of Pompeii. What would you expect in his library? Life of Anthony? <laughs> no, it was uh, the celebration of pleasure. Yeah. The reflections on pleasure by an Epicurean philosopher. Wow. Yeah. And, and, and of course, uh, you know, Mount Vesuvius uh, erupts and wipes the place out, in, like, a, like straight out of the Bible. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, and actually, if you look at the artifacts at Pompeii, a lot of them are downright pornographic, up to yeah. including oil lamps. Yeah. Um, uh, one of my former students uh, was there with his junior high, I think it was, age son, and they were going through and they took him to the brothel. And yeah. there were across the, you know, because people couldn't read, there were across the top depictions of yeah. everything you could get done there and how much it cost. And yeah. this, this poor, you yeah. know, 13-year-old or whatever he was, was just horribly embarrassed by this whole thing. But yeah. I can understand that. And yeah, a father was yeah. probably thinking, here I'm giving my son a great cultural experience. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I, I, I don't think his father quite expected No, I, I know. Yeah, you know, yeah, so. yeah, right. It's interesting. I was in I was in Ostia, Italy, which is where I think the famous episode of Monica pray, uh, uh, Saint Augustine's mother's the famous story about her praying there. But I also think it was where um, Pasolini, the the gay filmmaker, was murdered in a in a prostitution act. I don't know. It's it's a it's one of these mixed places. Um, but they they you know you have all your mosaics there, but you have one several buildings right in the middle of it. And we they're cut off for the most part, but you can peek in the window. But they're the same. They're all these pornographic images, which were basically the regular you know meeting house of the locals. Um, and it's interesting. We went around one corner. I was with some friends, and there was a mass being done outside in the middle of it, basically trying to still negate wow. all of its, right, <laughs> all right. of its right. history. And yeah, it's interesting. But this was the world in which you know a lot of these Christians had to figure out what does it mean to to enact a Christian difference. How do I still be a citizen? All the while being a resident alien, you know, uh, and, and part of an eternal city. I don't just, you know, I don't do like we would do today in a lot of the evangelical churches, just try to find a way for Christianity to be palatable to that barbaric and perverse world. Sorry. There is, there is a clear Christian distinction based on the distinct nature of God, creation, and what we're called to that leaves that out of the question for these early Christians. And yeah. the fact that they can see the difference between their God and this is powerful. Right. Um, just a side note here. Theater in this period was, frankly, pornographic, overwhelmingly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so when the early church fathers are denouncing theater, that's what they've got in mind. The unfortunate side effect of this, I strongly suspect, is that when you get to the Puritans, these guys knew the church fathers. Yeah. And so they pick up their rhetoric against theater, even the theater that isn't pornographic. Yeah. And and that I suspect is why they're down on a lot of what's going on in Elizabethan England. Yeah. It that that is very it that is 
fascinating in its own way. And I think this is the way in which kind of fundamentalisms develop. Um, right. They don't recognize how radically the church has impacted the world. So all they can see is how do we make it more pure? And the best way to do it is just condemn things that already, for the most part, had weaned those things off of the former gods and you know, uh, practices and actually put a Christian stamp of influence on them, changed them. And this is one of the things that I'm kind of get because you think of, you know, old um, games like, you know, not just the gladiatorial games, but games themselves, the Olympics for that matter, which when Christianity came on the scene, uh, they eventually stamped out, put an end to it. Um, and why? Well, it, because, it wasn't just because they didn't appreciate sport. It was that sport was so wedded to spiritual perversion and all of the symbolic aspects of their commitment to a culture given over to the demonic that there was no way to have something like a secularized sport. These things were all part of the, the, the continuance of, of the religious symbolism um, that keep, kept propagating these spiritual you know, problems and social pathologies. And so it, it was a long time. But in the process, as Christianity makes an impact on culture, you begin to see real changes happen that even non-Christians begin benefiting from and participating in things that were given by the church that society didn't have before. I'll give you another example. When you were having the back and forths in Rome, you eventually had uh, Julian the Apostate who wanted to return to an old pagan and get rid of the, the increasing Christian influence. But he has been so Christianized indirectly by the changes in culture that a lot of what he wants to create in a society were owed to Christianity, not to the old pagan past. So in a sense, you could say he was acting more as a Christian than a pagan, even though he was wanting to make Rome, you know, pagan again, if you will. Yeah. And, and so this is how powerful the Christian impact is. I mean, you see this in hospitals and healthcare, care for, for you know, the poor. I mean, you see transforming dimensions to society that we take for granted. Now, let, let's kind of jump from there to now. And it, it was interesting because I, I didn't watch the Super Bowl recently, and I'm not here to condemn people who enjoy watching football. One of the things I would say is sport has radically changed. We're not watching football to watch the barbaric games of old, though some people will still think it is. Um, we're not watching gladiatorial sport and bloodbath, right? It may still be a lot of, you know, physical, you know, back and forth. But on the whole, it, it's, it's removed from that. And, of course, the overt commitments to any pagan gods or, you know, the demonic, if you will. Um, it is very much immersed in a lot of the kind of post-enlightenment, well, enlightenment values and their impact on society. And some of these are very Christian, right? Teamwork, working together, a certain kind of solidarity, you know, and identity with teams that helps, you know, one kind of build a unity in a society rather than just fighting each other. There's a lot of good things, just like Rome could have a lot of good things. Um, but still, if we kind of unpack it a little bit, these things, sport, um, can become a, a kind of symbol in society, especially as as significant as it is for a lot of people in, in American culture, that has a lot of influence. It has a lot of indirect impact on people who, you know, follow it the whole season, have athletes they want to emulate and the like, whatever. 
Um, but some athletes, of course, may do it very much for the libido dominante, right? The fame, the fortune they get out of it, how they can be the center of, you know, a lot of money thrown at them and their name on everything and, you know, just, you know, personal self-glory, right? Um, but it could also be something that someone actually loves and does in humility, right? You can have someone who just wants to do, they're good at it, they want to do it, so they don't have to be given over to it as an idol, right? It doesn't have to become something we say, oh, sport is all bad, can't do it. It reminds me, you know, of Chariots of Fire. Yeah. Um, you know, which is really an extended reflection on this very thing. Mm -hmm. um, um, if folks haven't had a chance to see that, I, I, I think, you know, we take it for granted because, you know, uh, it was something that was part of the larger culture when we were younger. I wonder how many people born since, say, 1995 are even aware of it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Ever, ever watched it. But uh, in that film, you know, here we have uh, a very early, uh, you know, Olympic Games that is in Paris. And so there's a, there's a kind of Christian appropriation of that formerly pagan yeah. celebration. Yeah. Uh, and there's a lot of very serious reflection on, on sports uh, in the course of the film, because one of the characters, of course, is uh, Eric Little, who's a yeah. son of, of missionaries and a great runner. Uh, and he has, he's faced with a, a, you know, a choice. There's a crisis of conscience. Being a good you know, Sabbatarian, he can't bring himself to compete on Sunday, and that's when he's supposed to compete in the games. Yeah. And then there's another character who's Jewish, uh, Abrams, and he's reflecting on, you know, you know what he's doing from a from a very different perspective. Uh, but both both stories, you know, both, you know, are, they're parallel, uh, yeah. and they serve as a points of contrast. But also, there are kind of peripheral characters as well, and yeah. and really, at kind of at the heart of this are many of these themes that you've been talking about, Tom. One of them, in fact, when uh, Little's race is on Sunday, one of them offers, well, Little gets the race he was supposed to run because he says, hey, I've already got my gold. You know, yeah. he can run mine. Mm -hmm. Yeah, right. You know, yeah. that's not an attitude you would run into today. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. Th now, uh, by the way, I, I would want to pull this back to the Middle Ages for a, a moment. There was a very popular game, which is the ancestor of football and soccer and stuff that actually was used in the Roman Empire. The Roman soldiers did this uh, to sort of toughen them up. Uh, there were basically two rules in the game. One of them is how you actually score points, and the other is murder is not allowed. <laughs> <laughs> well, good Good rule. <laughs> yeah. But, but the, the, yeah, the, the, there, there were frequent fatalities in that game. Yeah. So if, um, you know, if you think modern football, American football is violent, um, consider this is really the, the, the kinder and gentler version of that. Yeah. <laughs> well, another, another film I'm thinking it comes to mind. You, you helped bring it to mind here, Glenn. Uh, is the first Rollerball. I don't know if you guys remember Rollerball. I remember. With James oh, yeah. Kahn. Not yeah. the remake. The remake uh, I didn't see, and, and people who saw I it tell me it's terrible. One I saw in the 70s. I was, I was, yeah, it was, yeah, it was James Kahn, the, you know, one of the guys in The Godfather. Father, he plays Sonny in, in, in Godfather. But anyway, um, 
uh, it's about the future and the return of blood sport. Yeah. Um, rollerball is a kind of gladiatorial contest, uh, yeah. but uh, I won't give it away. Uh, all you need to do is look it up. But one of the things that's interesting about it is that it in, envisions a world without nation states and sort of corporate uh, interests take over the world. Hmm. And so there's a kind of interesting sort of social sort of uh, kind of s- civic uh, critique that's going on. That's, um, yeah. Yeah, and and sort of uh, it sees big business as actually a threat to to to, to the nation. Well, that's state. that's where you know that I'm going. I'm going in that direction. Uh, but before I do, I think I think even you could say that some of the uh, the stuff going on with the the Hunger Game films is about this return of of this sort of elite watching this kind of game yeah. Yeah. that everyone is involved in. It, it really connects the. The way in which everybody's playing, and the way how significant it is for keeping those the, the those kind of hierarchies going, um, but satiating a certain kind of uh, series of diff- different kinds of uh, needs. And th- this is the thing I think. I mean, sociologists and, and Christians who've kind of looked at it through kind of culture war lens, like Hunter and you know th- those figures. I mean, they're aware that of the symbolic character and war and battle going on, um, that this is always the case that, you know, to take Durkheim, you know, these kind of religious symbols, that's what they functionally, they, they, they are, are the means by which a people become conscious of themselves, but continue to promote that kind of consciousness, right? So what do you start to get that has often now been adopted by the big corporations. I mean, so let's take Super Bowl. It is filled and flooded with corporate money interests, right? And besides that, they've now wed themselves to not only immense amounts of marketing and stuff to to play into our passions and desires as cultural people, but they've really uh, connected with the entertainment world. This is where the popular culture comes in. And they begin to basically reiterate the kind of values that, you know, certain figures, corporations and and the like want to promote because it's to their advantage and it plays into something where the culture is already disposed, especially in its movement away from Christian formation towards really uh, the God, you could say, you know, the return of, of you know, the goddess, of, well, or how about just say narcissist, <laughs> right? You know, the self at the center of all things. So what do you get? Well, you get, you know, predominantly entertainments that are all about promoting an image of themselves and that you can be like, you know, myself too, if you basically act like me, listen to my music, follow me around, are influenced by me, wh- whatever it is. But then the the symbolic figures, right, you have now because kind of woke is in and it's all about kind of the diversity and multicultural. Um, and those per se are not bad things. But when it becomes an ideology up to, to satiate a kind of liberal consciousness, you know, um, rather than actually something to do with actually valuing <laughs> someone all the way down, um, you get this superficial pop culture version of what what should be richer and deeper. But you get, you know, all these performances catering to different people, um, reaffirming certain kinds of things in people so that they can continue basically to see themselves and be affected by those things. Um, look at the 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 big Taylor Swift and the, this football player. I mean, first of all, it's bringing a lot of energy to the football world, but it's wedding that whole kind of teen pop culture 
to this drama event and orienting their appetites and loves into this kind of staged relationship. And they're bringing all of those kinds of pop elements into this sport. So this sport is becoming sort of spectator-like, and it is it is providing a lot of corporate and cultural benefit to a certain cultural disposition, if you will. And it is usually sold on this kind of self-expressive, empowered self, you know, whether it's my glory as a great football player or it's my fame as a, you know, a superficial singer that has just been promoted oftentimes beyond their talent, right? Whatever it is, some of them are talents. I'm not trying to be harsh. But what I'm trying to say is, what is the bringing of all of these symbolic worlds into this one event trying to achieve? And what is it that we as Christians should be aware of, as Augustine was with the different things going on and Tertullian was, not where we're just saying, don't do this or watch this or listen to it, but that it isn't theologically and spiritually innocent and that there are there are evocations and uh, allurements that are happening, whether through marketing or, or the various ways in which all of these things are being presented that are doing things to us as citizens and as Christians. And I think on one end, when you talk about pop culture, a lot of Christians have tried to mimic it in their churches, but they've been flooded with the same kind of conception of the human being that is flooded with all of popular culture that is antithetical to a lot of Christian understanding and actually is part of the self that needs to be denied, right? And now we just express it, you know, being a Christian is all about my self-expression and, you know, singing my, you know, finding my voice. Um, so I think we've, we've, we've been impacted. We are impacted. I'm not saying these things haven't been defanged from the old gods, but there is definitely a return with the, with the self at the center um, that we can't ignore. So yeah. any takes? <laughs> well, another dimension to this, which maybe we don't want to go off on, is the legalization of sports gambling. Hmm. So that now you have this constant drumbeat. If you're watching any any sports games, you get these advertisements, especially football, I guess, you get these advertisements for sports betting, you know, fantasy football leagues or whatever. Um, number one, gambling addiction is real. And this is this is just and it actually works the same way as um, as pushers on the street. You know, you you offer a big uh, premium for your first bet and then hopefully you'll get hooked and keep betting. You know, it's 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 just like the the your your first hit is free, right? You know, but um, you know, I think it was Orwell said something to the effect that you know the the government didn't have to worry too much about the people because they had football, drinking, and especially gambling. <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, yeah, I think that brings up something. I think um, we're th- considering um, essentially powerful um, alternatives. Uh, are strongly denounced. So obviously the Christian faith in its true form is not welcome uh, in the stadium. It's not welcome, uh, you know, when it comes to the players and what they have to say after a game, the the ones who are believers. Uh, It's not welcome 
uh, it's, you know, the natural family is not welcome. Um, it, you know, the natural family has a, a power that's rooted in the created order and, mm-hmm. uh, it evokes, uh, sentiments that can't be reconciled to any of this stuff. Um, yeah. so it, therefore it has to be, uh, if not, you know, uh, uh, denounced, at least ignored, um, yeah. or, or put on the same level with things that are clearly not on its level. Um, yeah. So, you know, any, even, you know, uh, national, uh, you know, you know, patriotism, uh, yeah. you know, I, I think one, I think one of the things that's uh, a, a dimension to sort of the anti-patriotic patriotic sort of character to, of our elites has to do with their global aspiration, uh, their, their, their global agenda. Um, yeah. You know, for, for example, you just think about uh, Google. I mean, it's a global company. Uh, yeah. and if it, if it, it doesn't want to alienate its Chinese audience, its Indian yeah. audience or anything like yeah. that too much Americanism, uh, yeah. will do that. Yeah. Um, so but this is a part of the story. Uh, I don't think yeah. it's the whole story, but I think it's part of the story for why there's such a, an embarrassment on the part of our cultured elites, uh, when it comes to, you know, things like, uh, Pledge of Allegiance, or and why you know they're they're willing to put up with, um, you know, conspicuous displays of 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 disloyalty to the country. Yeah, yeah. Well, that was one of the things that I you know again it, a popularization of you know the kind of woke agenda now filtering its way through sports, which. You know, if if you think very hard about how ridiculous all of that is, where here you have a bunch of people who, you know, are, you know, a lot of them are great athletes, but making ass, you know, these incomes that no one else will ever see in their life. And yet moaning and groaning about how oppressive everyone else is. They're all, they're all, it, you know, it, it is like Paul Griffith's article, you know, these woke are not real really serious about their quote unquote socialism or kind they're they're as committed to corporate culture they just want to be the ones benefiting from it because some of them didn't didn't have the ability to succeed in it in other ways and sometimes the door was shut to certain people fine um but but here you have you know it, you know i think they had to change the narrative that's why they have this kind of you know they they a, a new popular something is now dominating you know, the sport to get everybody watching again. Um, but but interesting, and this could be done with any sport or any kind of thing culturally. I'm just using it because it just came up. And I'm not criticizing, again, people who just, you know, love and value doing well at a sport and committed to it or love a team and stuff. I'm talking about all the stuff going on, all the all the stuff going on around it, right? And all well, those well, stuff. I, I, I even think those, those other things have compromised the sports. Yeah, yeah. So, for example, you know, when you have the kind of money that has been invested Invested in certain yeah. players, do you yeah. really want everybody to play as hard as they can, yeah. or do you do you do you create a kind of cushion around certain players uh, yeah. in order to not harm the brand of the larger product? You know, uh, which yeah. is the NFL in this instance, or you could talk about any other game. Uh, I think that anybody. Well, the thing I've observed is is often, and this is fascinating to consider. Um, retired athletes, you know, who succeeded in earlier eras are some of the harshest critics 
of the current state of the sports that they once participated in. This is particularly true in basketball, uh, where the guys are just like, this stuff that's passing for basketball today at the professional level is just so bad uh, that it's it's hard to even compare it to the era that that I was in, you know, that kind of thing. And uh, that sounds like, you know, the good old days talk. But when you look at the actual games yeah. footage and you say, yeah. well, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it really was a tougher sport once, you know, yeah. that kind of thing. Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting because in, in terms of, you know, exactly that, the, the kind of the things required to play well and the kinds of, you know, I mean, Augustine would even look in, in Roman society at people who limited their passions to do well, maybe for the wrong end of glory and not meritorious in any way, but still noble enough, something of God's providence that allows a, a, a people or a nation or a person to do something great, even if it even if it's limited and, and distorted. And so you would have that in, in many ways with people who excel at any sport and, and love it. Um, but on the other hand, it can become a avenue, an instrument of a lot of the vices that really undermine um, themselves and and their relationships and the larger culture. And you see this, I think, in the this strong emphasis on being proud about yourself all the time. And this would be an area of critique um, that, you know, that it isn't all about you. It isn't all about the endowments you have, their gifts anyway. Um, you've done something with them. That's great. But it, 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 again, it's something in humility to receive and excel at and take joy in. Um, you don't have to walk around like you're God's gift to the planet, right? Or, you know, focus me, me, me. And then there's the flip side. You you did see a little counter, and I didn't see it, but I heard some some people who watched the game talked a little bit, a commercial that came in that was supposed to be a kind of Christian opposition to all of that pride. And, and rightfully so, it was trying to emphasize humility in a way. So it shows Jesus washing the feet of all these sinners. It's a, it's a little commercial. Um, but the problem was it was all the sinners that happened to be popular on the list of, you know, the sentimental left and the sentimental, you know, kind of liberal social conscience. Yeah, what it, what it really was was a, uh, a mockery of, the, of Christian conservatives. Exactly. And it, and it really was just liberal social, uh, the appeal to liberal social conscience or some kind of innate human sympathy. Mm-hmm. But it isn't about the real humility that loves someone enough to to tell them the truth that you know you can find you can find everything and you can find life and eternal happiness without yourself being the center of the stage but death to yourself which requires repentance um, you can be transformed and made for eternity and a citizen of 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 you know God's God's city mm-hmm. um, and I think really that 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 sums up, again, um, what in our culture we're dealing with, different kinds of loves and different, different things loved differently. And the citizens of the kingdom can't be bound up with, even if they love in some way some of the things everyone else does, loving them the same way. They can't become idols and they shouldn't be fostering the kinds of things that are fundamentally at odds with, with Christ and, and the riches we have in him. Well, uh, we've got to that point where we should put a cherry on top when it comes <laughs> to this show. Um, anything you, you want to, that was a great sort of kind of summary there at the end, Tom, but is, but is there anything else you want to say? 
I think that's enough. I've just been, been thinking about it. The occasion came up, and I'm, I'm reading about it going on in a lot of the early church fathers and just trying to th- think through these things freshly. Yeah, yeah. Anything maybe that occurred to you, uh, Glenn, that you didn't have a chance to say? Yeah, I, well, I've just been kind of pondering because of this. The okay, Like I said, we don't want to go back to the fundamentalists who say don't, don't do, you know, all these do not do things. But I wonder sometimes if the backlash against that in evangelicalism hasn't left us too open to things we shouldn't really be open to. Right. So that's, well, you know, I, I, that's so, my reflection here. Yeah. Is it possible to have a discerning asceticism or is that not possible? I guess that's the question I've got. It's almost like if, you, if you're going to have anything, you're going to have too much of, the, of, of, of certain aspects of it, you know, what I'm getting at. Um, uh, it kind of this kind of the the way it goes um, with just anything you know that we do as a, as a sort of a large as a community because you're yeah. going to have people that take any any good thing in places that are kind of dumb. <laughs> yeah, if it's <laughs> worth doing, it's worth doing to excess. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Anyway, well, thank you for listening to the Theology Podcast. You've gotten to the end of this episode. And uh, now it's time to talk about our big trip to the United Kingdom. We have set up an Indiegogo campaign, and it should be live by the time this show is live. And there's a link in the show notes to that. I won't talk a lot about it because the Indiegogo campaign does that for us. Uh, we just recorded a little piece for that just a, just about an hour ago. And Anyway, we're looking forward to being there. We've gotten people from the United Kingdom who've reached out to us and told us that uh, they're looking forward to our arrival and they're actually going to come out and spend some time with us. And we think that's great. Um, But uh, if you want to help kind of support the cause, go to the Indiegogo campaign and check it out. Anyway, we also are grateful to the folks who support us on Patreon on a regular basis. And we've had some uh, recent gifts that have taken us into a, a new place when it comes to our, our monthly support. And we're grateful for that. Uh, there are costs that we incur on an ongoing basis. And uh, the, the Patreon uh, folks who support us regularly uh, pay those bills. So thank you, folks, for doing that. Anyway, that's enough for now. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. The Theology Podcast is a ministry of Trinity Reformed Church in Huntsville, Alabama. To learn more about the church, you can visit trinityreformedkirk.com, trinityreformedkirk.com.